And we are live. I had a little hiccup there for a second. It didn't want to kick over, but we are live. And welcome to the Friday edition of the Survival Podcast. And today that's going to be an episode of Outback with Jack. Uh, I've got like just six talking points today. Uh, I'm going to try to give some extra time toward Q&A and listener feedback stuff uh, during the live stream. So with that in mind, remember, if you post something, and you want me to star it so that I can come back to it at the end and address it in some way or another, make sure the first couple uh, words are in all caps. And if you're not putting something up for me, don't do that. <clears throat> the all caps thing confuses me sometimes. I'm trying to do all this on my own. I don't have a producer or anything like that. What are we going to talk about today? I, I had an interesting question from somebody. I don't think it was for the show. This person is uh, working for a company, and they're having to do forecasts, uh, of their revenue for, you know, coming years, coming quarters. And he's like, how did you used to do this? And he said, what we're doing is the, the SAP is, is kicking out our historical revenue and they're doing a multiplier on it. And that's just our forecast. And we've been disappointed with it. Well, yeah, I, I thought this was actually an interesting topic of discussion because it talks about a lot what's wrong with our economy. Um, the way companies forecast revenue. I've worked for companies that basically do that, and they have a dynamic element that adjusts it, which is better. But when they don't like the adjustment, they just force it back through as forecast to, to be higher than it's going to be. Uh, and then there's companies that do it the best you can, and it's still like divination. It's like uh, what are those things that you look for dowsing rods, right? It, it, that's what forecasting really is. You, you look at orders that are uh, pending. Uh, a bunch of other stuff. It, companies are stupid with it. And we get into a lot of trouble because of it. And I thought that would be an interesting discussion. Next, uh, I have a question on, would snakes be useful for rodent control in greenhouses? And I mean big, like, commercial-sized greenhouses. My answer is, well, maybe. It depends. and Probably not. Um, woke anthropologists, some of you probably saw that, or like... What, what exactly is that? Oh, you, we'll, you'll find out today. And it's indicative of this woke ideology as a whole. And I want to talk to you about not just how stupid it is, because we all know how stupid all this woke shit is. I want to talk to you about how where we are and where we're going, which is it's just going to keep getting worse, is the logical result of allowing it to have any legitimacy whatsoever. It can only get worse from here. And it has to totally crash and burn. Lots of people have to get hurt before anybody will finally admit, gee, this was dumb and we shouldn't have done it. Um, I have a question about meat rabbits. I've gotten this one before, but it's basically, well, they tell you you ain't supposed to eat rabbits in months that don't end in R. So it's like so without an R in it, right? So it's like September through February, you can eat rabbits and maybe March, right? It's got an R. April's got an R. Wait a minute. Maybe they have to end in R. I don't know, but there are certain months you can't eat them. Because if you do, they're going to have worms in them. But when it gets cold, the worms go away. No, that's stupid. And I'll explain why. Uh, next, how to design a property with permaculture when the property itself is a blank slate? I don't really have specific answers for this gentleman. But I understand once he sent me some pictures of his property why he's having a hard time designing it. It's a backyard full of grass and it's a rectangle and there's nothing there. 
This makes it really hard, and we're going to talk about how we design rooms and things like that in houses and why it's easy to design a living room. And I don't mean design the living room as, hey, this is where the living room is going to be. I mean, like, okay, here's a living room. Pick out the furniture and stuff for it. And that's and how that applies to permaculture design. Then I have a guy ask me a question that might sound ridiculous, but it's not. He says, I can't do free-range chickens. Can you put chickens in the cage and still have free-range benefits? You can. It's not the same. And I have some ethical rules for it if it's to be done right, in my opinion anyway. And then we're going to finish up today, bullet point seven, understanding inflation as draining your life force, your life energy over time. Think about some sort of like comic book thing or sci-fi thing where dude's there and another dude with the power comes and touches him and he dies. But he doesn't just like die. He literally like looks like a spider sucking out his blood, even though there's no blood going anywhere. He sucks out all his life energy and he ages really, really, really fast. And then he just dies. That's what inflation does to you, except inflation's a parasite because the bank is the actual parasite. The banks are parasites and They're tapeworms, they're ticks, they're leeches. And tapeworms, ticks, and leeches feed on the the life energy of a host, but they do it slowly enough that they don't kill it, because if they kill it, they die too. So we'll talk about inflation through that, <clears throat> through that, uh, that lens. All right, so before we do that, let's go ahead and hear from our sponsor of the day. Sponsor of the day, number one and only one today, we only have one sponsor today, is uh, Paul Wheaton. Let me get a better screenshot up for you guys in the live feed. This is the same one that he was offering last week. This is a great deal. I, I, and I don't say that lightly, guys. This is on video an entire PDC that was taught at Wheaton Labs and an entire appropriate technology course that was also taught at Wheaton Labs. It's a hundred and 77 hours of instructional video. Very well shot, very well done. Top instructors, including the great big Yeti Paul himself. Uh, this is the post on the, on the forum over at Permies where you can order the course and you can see everything about it. You can watch previews of it and video. You can see the different pricing options, but you can get, you know, basically video on demand, instant view, $65 for both courses combined. <clears throat> you can see all your instructors. This is this is the closest thing you're going to get to a PDC without it being a PDC. And in some ways, it's more because it's also the appropriate technology course. So you're not going to get a certificate. You're not going to get a project judged or anything like that. But if you just want all the information, every single bit of it, hands-on stuff done classroom style and in the field, as you can see, there's probably not a better deal out there than this. And here's how I know it's a good deal. We're talking processing meat here. Again, classroom instruction, group discussion stuff. You can see every single bit of it for 65 bucks. Guys, I, I, I don't know that there's a way that you could, you could get a better deal than that. And, uh, I definitely recommend it. Now, the video notes right here down in those video notes, there's a link to the audio uh, post that will go up about an hour after this video ends. There's a bunch of good stuff in there. If you guys have been hearing me talk about the fold card down in the video link, it's down there. All my Bitcoin tools are down there and a link to get that cool stuff from Paul Wheaton. 
right down there in the video notes. If you're listening to the audio, just go to the survivalpodcast.com and you can find all that good stuff in the notes for today's show, which is uh, episode 3144. And uh, let's, let's get on to uh, what we're going to uh, look at. That. There's a, there's a good comment. Weathered Soul says he bought the Permies course with the fold card. So he bought the, the Permies course and he earned sats back on his purchase with the fold card. That's called in permaculture <clears throat> function stacking, right? I was going to buy it anyway and I bought it with this card and I got free Bitcoin out of it. I've done the math. I've been, I've been actually using the fold card in earnest because when you first get it, um, it takes a while to get everything set up and get your card, your physical card in the mail and what have you. But I've been using it in earnest for like two weeks and I've stacked something like 270,000 sats already. That's not a huge amount of money, but that's all Bitcoin that I wouldn't have had. And, uh, it's definitely worth looking into. So let's just make them the unofficial second sponsor day. But guys, that deal that Paul has is pretty flippin' amazing. And again, guys, if you could do me a favor and you're not asking a question or giving me something to comment on for later, don't use all caps so that it's real easy for me to watch out of my one good eye right here on the side of the screen and just star stuff without actually reading it. Anyway, um, <clears throat> I want to start out with this uh, concept that what companies do is stupid and why it's dangerous because these companies, many of them are, you know, giant corporations on things like the Dow Jones uh and the S&P 500 and stuff like that. And they're influencing decisions that everybody's making based on their forecasts and where forecasts come from in corporate America. So when I first started in sales and I was in sales for structured cabling, my uh, sales manager was incompetent. So the ops manager of the, uh, of the, the entity I worked for, uh, basically made me the sales manager and then taught me how to do my job, even though the other guy had the title and, uh, put me in charge of things like overseeing forecasting. And I didn't know how to do forecasting. I understood Excel fairly well. That made it really easy for me to, uh, to, to, to pick up on what he was laying down pretty quick. And, and basically our forecast was dramatically simple. We had four salespeople. You should be working on things. When you're working on things, you have bids out. If you haven't put a bid out yet, you have in your mind—sorry, <clears throat> in your mind—this idea of that's about a hundred thousand dollar job. That's about a three hundred thousand dollar job. And you can estimate later that when you do the actual bid, what it really is, and you can move it up or down in your spreadsheet. So we would just run a spreadsheet, and it would be like the opportunity was like a real one that's coming to my mind right now: Sealand Services. $425,000 uh, status level. And in that case, it would have been bid has been placed. And then you would have a percentage of likelihood to close. And you put a number in there like 70%, 20%. We're just taking a shot at this. There's a customer that's probably going to give us the, maybe we're going to have to sharpen our pencil, but you know, this is a 90% chance to close. But we would only go to 100% when they sent the PO in. And, and that was a forecast. And you took everybody's forecast and you combined them into one workbook. And then you spit out, we're forecasting that we're going to do $2.2 million this quarter. And you know what? When we taught salespeople how to actually be honest about their percentage of likelihood to close and to start and actually made them better salespeople to communicate with their customers, if we win the job, when will we start 
And then they were able to look at the job and go, well, it's 400 drops, four, four cables each drop, 1,600 drops, basic Gantt chart in your head. It's a 90-day project, but there's going to be general contractors in the way, so it's a 120-day project. Progress billing is going to bill in three phases. All of a sudden, this little dinky company, we had forecasting that was 90% accurate. 90% accurate. Just using Excel. You'd think some version of that thereof would be what giant corporations would do. You'd be wrong. Because they don't work that way. See, they work with you have to have growth. You have to have growth, 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 growth is the thing. And the growth has to be the right number or higher. So if you're in the tech sector, that growth might be 20%. Now, we're not talking Facebook. When I say tech, we're talking things like computer test equipment and things like that. But you got to have the growth. And if you don't have the growth, you can't go. So you're going to have the growth whether you want it or not. So the growth can come in top-line revenue or it can come in profit as long as the growth is there. So when I ended up going to work for Microtest, we continued to do forecasting very much like what I just described. It was a much bigger company. We did have distribution channels. That gave us feedback. We had point-of-sale data. That gave us feedback. And we did have historical numbers that got factored in to setting baseline quotas, and we did strive for the growth. But we also had our, our regional sales VPs, which I was one of four, talk to our manufacturer's representatives and get honest assessments, have them providing us forecasting, consolidate the forecasting, and it was mostly done from a dynamic element. That's not how things were the minute that company got absorbed into a company called Fluke Networks, and I stayed there for three more years, and was run by a giant mega holding corporation, a public trading company known as Danaher. And Danaher simply said, thou shall have a minimum of 18% growth this year. Thou's quota shall be last year's quota plus 18% plus whatever thing you can do on top of it. So we would go through all the bullshit I just said to give an honest forecast based on what our contacts were telling us, what consultants, designers, architects, etc. The, the entirety, like having our finger on the marketplace, and we would give them a forecast and say, I know what you want, but we're going to have 11% growth next year. And lo and behold, you know what we would have next year? 11% growth And I am saying growth that way on purpose. I don't have a lisp or anything because it's so retarded that it's so much we must have this. And all they would do is say, make it 18. Now, I'm not talking about when you made the forecast. That ship had sailed. They already did it to you. You had your original forecast and your altered forecast. I mean, when you're coming toward the end of the year and son of a bitch, all these highly paid guys that work their ass off for you to get you that 11% growth in a down year that pulled off what they said they could do for you, you needed it to be 18%. And you know what they would say? I don't care how you do it. You know what that means? Cut costs. Cut costs. Fire people. Lay people off. Downsize. I don't care what you do. Make it 18%. And then Danaher held all these multi-million dollar corporations. This was, Fluke Networks was close to a billion dollar corporation. This is not a small business by any stretch of the word. Um, I was carrying a, a, a quota bag of $200 million in this company, 
$200 million in sales I was responsible for. And, uh, yeah, it was absolutely insane, and they would do it. And then Danaher could go out and say, here's our portfolio of companies that we own and manage, which they did no management. I just gave you their management. That's all they did. They absorbed these companies with fiat money that they borrowed for next to nothing. And then they said, thou shall have growth of this amount. And we don't care. So did we really grow? They could report it as revenue growth or they could report it as growth and profit. They didn't care which one. And they, what they would end up doing is saying we had 11% growth, right, in revenue, but 18.5% growth in profit. That's what they would do. And then they would be successful, and then more people would buy Danaher stock, and then they would get more money and more power, and they would buy more companies, and they would rip them apart and do this to them. This is the stupidity of modern forecasting. We just take last year, like there's no reason to actually put all your people through the crap to give you an honest assessment of the marketplace if you're just going to say it's last year plus X, but that's what they do. And then you have some aberration come in. For instance, one of the ones I worked through was the year 2000 debacle. So what happened is half of the sector spent all the money in 1999 because they were afraid they wouldn't be able to get more money in 2000. And half of the sector held all the money in 1999 until Y2 came and went and nothing bad happened. Razors didn't attack people. Like electric razors didn't try to eat people. Like, okay, and then they spent it. So 2000 was a huge year in the tech sector. And then we had, you know, the dot-com bust, and everybody expected us to have growth on top of year 2001, 2000 numbers in 2001. This is part of why you can never trust anything an economist tells you on television. And this is why I spent 10 minutes explaining it to you on a show called The Survival Podcast. You now know more. You now know more than most people in the country about one of the sources of numbers that are used in economic equations by these ass clowns on TV telling you what is or isn't going to happen or telling you what to invest in and what not to invest in. In other words, it's all vaporware. It's all bullshit. Sometimes you actually make those numbers. Sometimes you don't. But it always says you made the numbers unless you failed so miserably You can't lie with statistics. By the way, lying with statistics is one of Bill Gates' favorite books. I'm just saying. Let's move on from there. Let's do something totally different. Snakes. I want to actually read you this email for a little bit more context. Uh, Larry said, we have rodents in several greenhouses. Could snakes be a viable natural solution? Details are in the Ozarks of Missouri, Zone 6. Would like a natural way to control mice. Several greenhouses at work where mice are constant in a battle. Would a snake or two for greenhouse work? Uh, most houses are 30 by 100 feet. So these are like high tunnels. These are big. The largest is 30 by 380 feet. Should we just rotate them or assign them to specific houses? Snake, you're assigned a greenhouse four. Oh, like greenhouse four. I want to go to greenhouse three. You're not greenhouse three material there, boy. Get in the greenhouse. No, I'm just kidding. Right? Um, what breed would work best for mousing and not harass the garden team? We're also considering feeding frozen mice from the live traps over the winter when we have less infiltration. Even considered owls. Possible issues. Snakes finding the same holes the mice are using and leaving. Yeah, that's going to happen. 
um, supplying a heat lamp during the winter months. Yeah, snakes like to sleep in the winter. Um, feeding causing the snakes to not hunt. Okay. So let's talk about what makes snakes really great at controlling mice. It is not really that the snake will coil, because they'll do this, right? But this is not what makes them dynamite at it. That they'll coil up and they'll wait. And here comes Mr. Mouse, and he comes from around the flower pot, and bam! And Mr. Mouse gets grabbed, and he gets wrapped up around, he gets a, basically they give them a cardiac concussion. If you really, it's not really so much they choke them to death, they literally crush their heart so hard they have a cardiac concussion. Little Mousey turns blue, and old Snakey just swallows Mr. Mouse down, he has a little bit of trouble, but when he gets to the end, that tail goes down like you're sucking up that last piece of spaghetti. It's great they do that. That's not really what knocks the dick, uh, the, the, the dick in the dirt of the population. It's that Mr. Snake, these little baby snakes who aren't quite big enough to eat big full size mouse and big full size, uh, uh, big full size rat. Well, they like to eat little, little bitty mouses and, and rats. So little Snakey, he crimes around and around and around until he smells with his little tongue and his Jack Boxman's organ and he finds himself a nest of little bitty mouses that can't fight back or run away. You know what he eats? All of them. I'm talking a nine-inch snake, big around as your index finger, maybe big around as your pinky. He'll eat six to eight little hopper or pinky mouses. He'll look like just bloated, and he'll grow really, really fast after that. Now, will the big snakes do that? They will only get hungry enough, and that's what they do. It's not just that they take out mouses and rats at one-to-one ratios or two-to-one ratios. It's that they literally will find nests and eat everything. Well, what happens when they eat everything? Well, they get hungry. And when they get hungry, they're going to leave. And are you going to be able to seal up the greenhouse to keep a snake in? Trust me, if a mouse can get in, a snake can get out. Would this hurt? No. It wouldn't hurt you at all to do it. Would it work? Probably for a while. What would be the best snakes? Since they're going to get out, you need native snakes that will not interrupt your ecosystem in a negative way. What is the best snake in the Ozarks of Missouri? Probably some version thereof of a black rat or a bull snake. And so... There's all kinds of snakes that really, they're just rat snakes, like corn snakes are rat snakes, black rats are black rats, Texas rat snakes are rat snakes, they're all elfy. Uh, and your bull snakes, bull snakes, pine snakes, all, all those guys are kind of in the same realm. Uh, milk snakes would be fine too, that's a totally different species. Uh, anything that's native to your area. If I was going to do this, what I would do is go harping. And don't go messing with things that rattle at you or have gaping mouths with white in them, things like that that are in your area that will bite you and send you to the ER and possibly kill you. And look for non-venomous coolabrits. So those are your rat snakes, your milk snakes, etc. And I would I would capture them, and I'd bring them into the greenhouse and just let them go. Some of them will hang out, some of them will leave, and I would do that on an ongoing basis. And as your mouse population dwindles, your snake population will dwindle. And when your mouse population comes back up, I would try, that's the only way this is going to work. If you go online to someplace like kingsnake.com, which is a real place, and you go to like the other snakes, rat snakes, 
category and they're classified and you find some dude that sells rat snakes and say, dude, tell you what, man, I don't want to buy your expensive ones, but I know you breed these things. You have a whole crap ton of them that are just, they're not pretty enough or whatever. I'll take them all and they can be babies and I'll just throw them in there. You're throwing your money away because they're all going to eventually haul ass and leave. But it can be beneficial. Now, as far as harassing or bothering the gardeners, this is personal. No snake is like, oh, look, there's a human. I'm going to go screw with the human. Snakes, their whole goal in life is to avoid people. They don't like us. They don't want anything to do with us. They want to be left alone. You're going to need to provide them places where they can go be left alone, like little hide boxes or something like that. But they'll occasionally they'll come out and do things. Like it'll be a cool day, but it's nice and warm in that greenhouse, and the sun's nice and warm. And Mr. Black Snake, he's going to cruise up, and he's going to, he's not going to. By the way, when he's six foot long, okay, and he weighs like you know six seven pounds, he ain't going to. Just so you know, he's not going to be worried about your lettuce plants. He's going to crawl right into your lettuce plants and make a long snake-shaped flat spot. So I don't know if this is really going to work for you or not. Um, but I've been in greenhouses, especially down near the Houston area, that are full of, like, ribbon snakes and garter snakes and stuff like that. And, I mean, you like, especially if it's like an aquatics greenhouse, like, they're everywhere. And they don't really bother anybody unless the person's afraid of them. And I know that one thing you might have if you take this approach is your staff might feel like, well, it's going to make other snakes come. This is exactly the opposite of what it'll do. If there are snakes in your area, and that's a really cool place for a snake to live, whatever snake comes along, if there's a vacuum there, is going to go in there and fill that vacuum, including, you know, your timber rattler or something like that. If you have a bunch of, like, speckled kings, I think are indigenous to southern Missouri, well... If Mr. Timber Rattler goes in there, tank snakes won't eat them. So there's nothing wrong with this. Just know that that's, that's, that's the dance you're playing there, right? A green country agriculture says rock piles. I wouldn't do rock piles in something like that. Too easy for one of the staff to step on it, shift it, and squish Mr. Snake. I would do more like just up, like basically a box with a hole in it upside down on the ground. That's all they need, and they'll figure that out on their own. Uh, I wouldn't worry about giving them heat lamps, and I will tell you that snakes in North America, they don't just brumate on temperature alone. They brumate, which is like half hibernate, on day length. So in your winters, those snakes are going to, they'll tunnel in the ground, they'll find some place to hole up, and they're not going to be active even if you put heat lamps out for them. The way you keep a, a North American coolabrid active through your winter is not just heat, but you have lighting and the lighting you keep at a day length of at least like nine to 10 hours. And you kind of trigger breeding with like a 1410. If you want to know that, I'm not, I'm, I gotta go. I gotta stop. I'll just keep, I'll just keep chattering. If we keep talking about snakes, cause it was such a big part of my life at one time. All right, let's look at this. This is a lot of move again. Let's go to some now for something completely different, right? Um, Woke anthropologists, and I don't really know that it's anthropologists. It's the anthropologists are being targeted by uh, scholars. Because we know scholars are right about everything. And scholars are calling on anthropologists to stop classifying human remains by gender and race. No, you did not read that wrong. 
Woke activists are calling for anthropologists to stop classifying human remains as male or female, as well as by racial ancestry. Um, archaeologists and anthropologists, including those who specialize in criminal forensics, frequently use information about human remains, such as the size and the shape of the bones to determine gender and race of the deceased individual. This information is often vital to criminal investigations as well as important understanding ancient civilizations. But um, one group called the Transdoe Task Force says it actually maintains its own database of missing and unidentified people who the group thinks could be transgendered or gender variant because most databases don't allow you to compare missing to unidentified across different binary sex categories. Yeah, I, my head hurts. I feel you guys. I, I get it. This is stupid. This is really stupid. This is incredibly stupid. But I'm not surprised. Nothing about this surprises me. When you allow within a civilization an idea that is bluntly retarded to be accepted as being factual, It becomes a cancer, and it metastasizes, and it grows, and no amount that you ever give to the mentally deranged uh, portion of your society who has accepted the bullshit will ever be enough. So what should have happened with this, if society had any desire to remain cohesive, is the first person that said, well, gender is just a construct, and you can identify, should have been told to shut up, slapped in the face with like a frozen fish, and sent along their merry way. The minute that didn't happen, the minute this was allowed into academia, the minute this was given a, a, a microsecond of this is okay, this is rational thinking, this is serious thought by academia, mainstream media, and government, this is the only place we could end up, and it is only going to get worse from here. The, the, these people... Would I want one of these people that says this to me, that gender doesn't matter, whatever, we shouldn't be doing, you know, identifying people. I want you to go get a bowl and a bucket and get me a gallon of milk. How about you do that for me? Go get a bowl and a bucket and bring me a gallon of milk and then we can talk. And until you can, and when you, what you bring me might be white, but it will not be milk. I want to see you drink it if you tell me it's milk. If you don't get your ass gored to death by the bull somehow. This is absolutely one of the dumbest things a society has ever embraced. And I know you're like, we didn't embrace it. You didn't embrace it, but your society has embraced it. This has been embraced. This has been accepted. And once you do this, you have to understand that there's two types of people that buy into this. There's people that are so just so much a crowd following sheep, so much have a desire to be accepted by their peers. That if they're in a leftist profession, a leftist ideology, a leftist school, surrounded by other leftist people, and the left has just been, it doesn't mean the right couldn't have adopted it. They just didn't. In this case, it was the left. But your, your sphere has adopted this thing. They'll at first begrudgingly go, yeah, sure. And they're in their head, they're going, this is stupid. But if you do that, So your brain doesn't know the difference. When you tell your brain, I believe this thing, over time you self-brainwash. And they actually come to believe it. They're still potentially redeemable. 
they're still potentially redeemable. But there's another segment of it, and it's a much bigger group of people than you think it is, that are truly mentally defective. They actually believe their own bullshit from the very beginning. And when you give an inch, it's not just that they take a mile. It's I want you to understand the actual mental result of giving that inch to those people. They just heard, I'm right. I really am a gender-fluid, non-binary otter. I'm right. I've been validated. It is. It feels good to be validated as a gender-fluid, non-binary otter-human hybrid. But what about that non-gender-fluid, twice-binary, duck-human hybrid over there? It's being... Z's me. Oh, I better ask it. It's pro. I said it wrong again. Duck hybrid, non-binary, fluid, whatever you. What are your pronouns? Z. Okay. Z is being offended by you other people not accepting Z. I must now advocate for Z. And eventually they find all the otter hybrid, duck hybrid, whatever is skewed mentally deficient individuals that actually want to be concerned, that want to be validated. But then that felt good. I am a non-binary gender-fluid superhero. I have helped. I have made this happen. And then they start to seek victims that don't even exist. Not only do they seek victims that don't exist, they literally create a victim. Because when you're telling a six-year-old girl that just likes her hair short, that she might actually be a boy, you're creating a victim. So they create new victims, but they also, they basically fabricate out of thin air new victims that don't exist. The dude that's dead, that died in like the year 1100, and we found this human settlement we had never seen before, and we're like, well, what do we have here? And we find the remains of like a, a nuclear family, in a small, what's left of a small dwelling, and we know a catechism occurred because it's not normal for them all to die in one place. Or did they bury that way? We don't know. We need to figure this out. We 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 need to know. Like, oh, there was a male and a female that were in their forties, and there were some younger people, and there were some children, and there was this makeup. Oh, and by the way, you know what? If we were to find that, not saying we did, but if we were to find that from 1100 years ago, and let's say. Central Canada, and we determined that the race of those people was of African descent, that would be a momentous freaking discovery. We would have to like go, holy shit, wait a minute. How did somebody get here from the African continent, a black person? Is that okay to say? I'm not sure. 1100 years ago. I didn't say it happened. So nobody even claim I said it. If you see anybody like take a piece of this video and say I said it, they're awful. I'm making an extreme example. That would be important to know, wouldn't it? When we have to go, you know what we have to do? <laughs> we, we, we have to figure this whole human migration settlement, like everything's wrong. It'd be important to know. If we found a settlement and all the people in it were female, there would be some investigating to do. Well, why is that the case? Is it the Amazon women? If so, how do they procreate? Where are the men? We'd want to know that. 
If somebody was murdered and they're a Jane or a John Doe, it's kind of important. This was a dude. This is a six foot four inch dude. He was Hispanic. If we're going to figure out who he was, but, but he could have been, he could have been identifying as a woman and been trans. Well, if there's any indication of that, we'll include that in the profile. But isn't just this stuff. It isn't just this stuff. It's also, if you go, like these people now, they want to go to doctors and they want to be treated like the sex they identify as. This is dangerous for them, for Z. Z's going to die because of this. Because if you're a woman, you know what I don't, I don't test you for? Prostate cancer, testicular cancer. Why would I? You're a woman. You don't have a prostate. You don't have testiculars. We have men that want, that want tampons. I don't know what you could, I, I could think of something you would do. I don't think that's what they're for. I think it might cause a problem. Like this is a mental illness that is now spreading and it's infecting minds that would never have been infected with it in the past. And if you think, Like I said yesterday, no one's coming to save you. If you think when the Republicans take the House and the Senate back that this is going to stop, you're out of your mind. This stuff actually accelerated under Trump. It's not Trump's fault. I don't mean, I'm just saying like it doesn't have any impact on it. This has been done. This has been done by using the people that actually believe this bullshit, that actually have these mental diseases as useful idiots. The people doing this. The people doing, yeah, it, it does that green country agriculture. That's not what these people are doing with them. Trust me. Anyway, as a tampon comment, you can look up the stream if you want to later and see what it was. It's pretty funny. Anyway, um, these people that are actually behind this, they're using it to destroy our society, to break our society apart. A strong, cohesive society with common base core beliefs is very difficult to control. Very difficult to control. A divided society that hates each other is very easy to control. Because how does a giant march? Left, right, left, right, left, right, left, your left, your left, get in step, left, your right, your left, your right, your left, your right, your left. It has to keep going. Left, right, left, right, left, right. Little bitty country, you can just install a dictator and take over everything right away. Big, great big old giant republic like the United States with 50 individual member states in it with free and open elections and a constitutionally uh, democratic representative democracy. Doesn't work that way. You got to have swings of the pendulum. You got to step on their face with the left foot, and then you got to step on it with the right foot. So we need these massive swings. And what you end up finding is every time one group takes over, the worst part of that group becomes the new normal. And the people on both sides polarize further out. And again, left and right is a stupid construct because the real political spectrum is real world, actual total voluntarist anarchy on the left or the right. It doesn't matter which side, but I just happen to be using my, my left arm for this. And then pure statism on the right. And left and right statism are both way on that end over there. Right? This is, But this is how you get there. This is how you move from soft tyranny where we are now to hard tyranny. 
you polarize. And so when, when the pendulum swings to the right this time, it's going to go more full on fascism. And when it swings to the left, it's going to go more full on socialism and it will swing to the left again after it swings to the right this time. One cycle, two, three, it doesn't matter. It will swing and it keeps swinging the pendulum instead of reaching its, its prior apex. It's actually swinging further out each time. Now, if you're sitting there going, but Jack, fascism is a kind of socialism. Well, you get the point then, don't you? Well, both of the freaking feet are going in the same direction. And if you don't think we get there from this nonsense, it is not acceptable to dig someone up in a pyramid in Egypt and say it was a man or a woman and figure out what if that, this person's in this giant pyramid. They must have had some role. In some, who were they? Well, you don't know. You can never know. It's not possible because we have to, like, admit that we don't know how they identified. Well, here's the thing. Yeah, we do. There was very little of this nonsense for the vast majority of the human experiment on planet Earth. And we know that, and they do too, and that's why they don't like it. Because it shows that they're the aberration. But the aberration is not just because sick people have mental illnesses and want you to participate. There's no way a relatively small number of people could have infected so many of their, their contemporaries, their, their peers, with a mental illness unless the people in power wanted it to happen. There's two ways things go viral. There's organic viral, whether it's a disease or an idea. You put out a video, it's funny, guy gets his balls busted somehow, driving a bike off of a house. And it organically goes viral. You ever see one of these viral videos like, this video got 9,900 million hits. And you watch it, it's like some lady wearing a Chewbacca mask, talking to her kid or something. It's just not funny. It's not good. You watched it three times, which added to the 99 gazillion hits. And the only reason you did it is because somebody told you. You're like, I don't get it. That's because they put it on Good Morning America and said it went viral. And that made it go viral. That's what this is. This wokest viral bullshit, it went viral because they made it. All right. Now, once again, for something completely different, let us talk. And I realize, guys, I haven't been watching a stream. If you got something for me to talk about, put it in all caps now. I, I, I got animated today, and I ain't been paying attention. So I have not marked but one comment in the live stream for follow-up so far. So if you did it already, you might want to do it again. Um, guy emailed me with two questions. This was one of them. I'm going to go real quick on this because... Once you hear the answer, if you've never heard it before, you'll be like, well, duh, that was stupid. Why did I ever believe that? He said, is it okay to harvest meat rabbits in warm months? Because, you know, when you hunt, they tell you to only hunt rabbits in the winter because they'll get worms. Okay, this is like when you tell a kid, don't pee in the pool because there's a chemical in the pool. And if you pee in the pool, it's going to turn pink and it's going to stain your legs pink and everybody will know that you peed in the pool. There's no chemical in the pool. The kid's not going to turn pink and not everybody's going to know he peed in the pool if he peed in the pool. Why'd you tell the kid that? Right? Why? You told the kid that so he would be afraid to pee in the pool. Okay. So, you know, it's sort of the same thing. Like, if you shoot rabbits in the spring and the summer, that's when they're having baby rabbits and the baby rabbits will die. But if you tell people, oh, you'll get worms. You'll get worms. 
Oh, you'll get worms. And maybe they won't kill the rabbits and you'll have kind of an ethical hunting society. Because is a rabbit warm-blooded or cold-blooded? Ah, oh, wait a minute here. So, I don't know. Let's A rabbit's body temperature, I imagine, is hotter than a human's. It's probably like 101. Let's just say it is. What temperature is the rabbit's body temperature when it's 95 degrees outside? 101. Okay. Right? 101 degrees. No. Yeah. It is, right? It's whatever it is. It's 101, right? What temperature is the rabbit's core body temperature when it's 60 degrees outside? Well, it's a warm-blooded animal. Maintains its own body temperature. It's going to be 101 degrees. What temperature is the rabbit's body when it's 20 degrees out and the rabbit's hopping around the snow? The answer would be, again, 101 degrees. Maybe it gets a little bit colder. Maybe his body temperature, he shivers a little bit. I should go back in his hole and warm up. But what temperature do you think that tapeworm or whatever is going to die at? Like 50 degrees, 40 degrees, something like that? Okay. Hmm. Do you know what happens to the rabbit when his body temperature is like 10 degrees too low? Yeah, he died five degrees ago. That's what happened to the rabbit. So the idea that you would be able to have worms cleansed from the rabbit because the temperature outside went down, right, is as asinine. And, and Crystal says they just have a lower parasite load in the winter. No, they don't. No, they don't. Now, if a rabbit has worms, a rabbit has worms. Nothing changes in the winter, except there's one thing that will change, and it has nothing to do with the temperature directly. Some rabbits will get, like, botfly larvae, they'll call them warbles, in their skin. They're never in the flesh. And these are where there'll be lumps on them. And if you squeeze them or you put something over the wound, the, the, the little larval fly can't breathe anymore. You have to come out and you pull them out, right? So that's also probably part of the mythology that you don't find rabbits having warbles in their skin in November because there's no flies active then to lay those in them. But as far as internal parasites, there's no, there's no difference. And if they had lower, it wouldn't matter anyway because they're still there. And that's why we call, that's why we cook rabbit. And the warbles that are in their back, they're kind of nasty looking and all, but they're not going to affect the food quality of the rabbit because they don't go into the muscle. They stay in the skin. So it's just, it's just nonsense. And as soon as you think about it that way, it doesn't make any sense at all. Other than we probably shouldn't be killing the wild rabbits in the summer because we need them to breed so that we have a sustainable populations of rabbits to hunt. But this is why people harvest their meat rabbits year-round and don't worry about it because it's not worth worrying about. All right. Next, let's talk about a problem a gentleman emailed me. Um, oh, now there's something. There's, there's another example. Like the carcass cools quicker, Green Country Agriculture says. And he said, uh, but if you're cooking and killing immediately, it doesn't matter what you hunt during the hot months. Yeah, and I guess that would be a reason to actually, if you're a primitive society, hunt animals like rabbits more in the warm season and, and, and leave them alone in the cool seasons 
and rely on big game in the cool seasons and small game in the, the, the warm season. You would actually do the converse if you think about it, right? Because if I kill a rabbit, me and my boys, we're going to eat that. Rabbit is done, man. He, we don't have to preserve the meat. That rabbit's done. If we kill a deer, we're making jerky or biltong or pemmican because it's, it's, it's warm out. We got to move quick. So anyway, it's actually the opposite. <laughs> if you think about it. So designing permaculture property, got this email from a dude and he's like, I don't know what to do. I don't even remember the specifics. And I, I guys, you have to understand something. If you said a very specific, I need to design this thing for this purpose. I probably am not going to do it because I'm going to go out and tell lots and lots of people the thing that's just for you. I have to be more general anyway, but I can tell you right now why this guy's having a hard time. The picture was out his back door, almost completely flat. I think it was around a quarter acre-ish lot, hedge fence, flat green grass, nothing. So what can you do? Anything you want, and therein lies the problem. Therein lies the problem. Restrictions create elegant designs. And a lack of restrictions means that to have an elegant design, you have to create your own restriction. So I want you to think about it this way. 1,800 square foot house, 16 by 20 living room. Walls are wherever they are. Windows are wherever they are. There's a fireplace. And I send you in there and go, I want you to go to the room store or Ashley's or wherever, pick out the furniture and design that living room. And you go, well, what do you want? I go, I want you to do it in the way that you think looks best. And once you understand I'm not kidding and I hand you my, you know, Amex black card and you go off to be my interior designer, it, I might not love what you come up with, but you're going to design a pretty decent living room. You're going to go sit in the couch and you're going to look at it and the measurements and the wall and like, here's where you can't put the TV here because it's glare from this. Well, we'll need dark out uh, blinds so that we can put the TV there because that's the best place. Or maybe we put the TV over here so that's not as much of a thing. We don't want to block the window. You're going you're gonna to start immediately proceeding to lay out a functional living room. And you might be a good consultant and say, well, Jack, do you even watch TV? And I'm like, no, we don't even watch TV. We sit in our living room and we talk and we read and we listen to music. Well, your entire design just changed because now you're not trying to center it on a television. Right. But you're you're moving around with restrictions. Now, 1800 square foot building, 60 foot by 30 foot rectangle, no walls. And I say, make me a living room. You actually have total freedom now. You can do anything. You're going to sit there and you're going to be like. Oh, this is hard. This is difficult. Well, where's the living room? Where's the kitchen, right? You have no walls. The walls are your initial restrictions. Flooring types are an initial restriction. Windows are initial restrictions. Air vents. Some houses, like my house, has air vents in the ceiling, where, frankly, I think they belong. But some houses have floor vents in the floor, where I don't think they belong. But if it's there, it's there. Well, if you have a floor vent that your HVAC blows either cold or hot air, depending on what time of year it is, you're not going to put your couch on top of it, right? You have restrictions. The room's only so big. If the room's 12 foot by 12 foot, it's a little bedroom. You're not going to put a, a 
uh, a chest of drawers in there, it's 12 and a half foot long. It won't fit. If there's a door on the wall, so the wall's only 10 foot long, you're not going to put the dresser in there so big it's going to overlap the door. You're going to immediately, so this is what you have to do, right? You need to create restrictions, and you need to start off with, well, what do I want, and what do I need? Do I want chickens? I want chickens, now I need a chicken coop. Okay, what makes sense from a standpoint of a chicken coop? Am I going to do a chicken coop and run, which is what we're going to talk about here in a minute? Or am I going to be able to let these birds free range? Or are they going to have a coop, but they're going to be moved around, and the coop's going to be mobile, and they're going to have, you know, electro netting? What am I going to – once you figure that out, then you say, okay, well, how's that going to move? If it moves for the system, your restriction is I don't want to screw the access up. If it's going to be stationary, I don't want to put it in a place where I'm going to realize a year later it was the wrong place. I don't want it too hot. I don't want it too cold. Do I want to put trees in? If so, how many? If I want to put a lot of trees on a small piece of ground, I know I'm going to be doing backyard orchard culture. If I just want a nice shady place and I want a kind of a shade garden, I want big overstory trees, maybe I do full-size apples or something like that because I'm not trying to get a bunch of fruit, but I'd like some. Am I going to have a patio? Because this place had no real patio, a deck. Is there going to be an overhead? You have to start with the hardscape first. The hardscape, and you're back to the way you evaluate property. Water, access, structure. And you know, I think, well, it's third acre backyard. I'm not going to have a big pond in it or anything. Okay, maybe not. Probably not. I'm going to have a creek or anything. No, okay. But you're going to have water. As in, you probably have either a well or city water. And you're going to have water in, you know, are you going to have just a hose bib on the back of your house? Or would it be smart while everything's just wide open to run some infrastructure and put some pipe in the ground and plumb into your system? Are you going to do rain catch? Okay. Where's the best place for that? How could you distribute that across? So that's water access. Well, it's all right there. I can see it. Well, if you're going to be moving stuff around, you know, if you're going to, you've got a fireplace. I know you're going to be chopping wood in your backyard, but you're probably going to have a wood pile. Where's that going to go? Are you going to have, like, are you going to carry the logs one at a time in the winter? Or are you going to use a wheelbarrow? Right? When you start thinking that way, you start, okay, well, I'm going to have this pathway. Well, is that the right path? Will that create erosion? Will it shed water? What will it do? If you take the approach of doing this when you look at a property, instead of just looking at it and going, Well, I'm going to put a garden there. Do you want a garden? If so, what kind of garden? Why do you want that kind of garden? What do you expect it to do for you? What's going to be your composting solution? Start to list all the elements that you want and or need and think of them relative to water access and structure and then start connecting them. How do they connect? Do they connect? Well, if you want a vining crop that takes a lot of sun, and you don't have that much land, you probably don't want to take and put a great big grapevine trellis right in the middle of your yard. The dog's going to run through it, pee on it, whatever. But you might go ahead and put that back deck in or concrete patio or whatever it is and put up a pergola. And then you might cultivate grapes up onto the pergola. And now the pergola that needs to provide heavy shade in the summer and filtered shade in the winter and let the sun in, now it's functional. So those two things went together. If you're going to have a waste stream, you need to have a composting system. If you have chickens, 
The chickens connect to the waste stream that is the composting system. How do they connect? They probably connect through you or another member of the household. You're probably collecting your waste stream. And once a day, once every other day or so, as the waste builds up, you're going out to where the chickens live or exist in some way, and you're going to dump it into some way that they're going to process it. I'll leave that up to you. Well, that path is going to be walked every day with that compost bin. Even on days you don't take the compost out, that chicken probably is going to need to be set free, even if it's set free into a large run. Well, you're going to go there. That means you're going to walk that path. That might be a good place to grow things on both sides of the path. That path, instead of being a straight line, may want to meander a little bit on contour. It might be a little bit wider than you need it to be. It might be completely level and shed water perfectly off both sides into two somewhat narrow but deep mulched beds that you just grow your vegetables you know, you're, you're cutting vegetables on the, and your herbs on the way out and back. You're never going one day without going, oh, that's a weed, yank. And when you yank the weed and you're holding the compost in your other hand, what do you do? You put the weed in the compost and you give it to the chickens. You might even go, that's a good weed. Chickens love that weed. It's really little. I'm going to let that grow another week. And I know that if I let it grow two more weeks, it's going to get a really big root system and be hard to get out. So you need to pull it out on the exact right day and take it to your chickens. But you have to, and I mean you have to, place restrictions in your design. And every person I, I get an email from that really is stuck, and they say, I attached a picture. 90% of the time, people that do that, I guess they're nervous when they're emailing or something, they forget. I'm like, no picture. And I'm waiting for the picture to come, and I'm like, I know what it's going to be. It's going to be a bare piece of property with nothing on it. It's going to be no fence. No, nothing. And that's why they're stuck. So this is actually where paper design is really helpful. You sit there and look at it. Well, if you get graph paper and make a scale model of the property and start thinking about how you would design it without looking at it, they won't always end up working out, but they'll get you in the flow. And once you get in the flow of that design process, everything starts getting really, really easy. And you start saying, well, this creates a restriction. Okay, that's good. Do I want that restriction? Am I willing to live with that restriction? Or is that restriction getting in the way of something that has a higher priority? And we start moving our restrictions around since we're the ones creating them. When nature gives us the restrictions, when society gives us a restriction, like a, an ordinance, our designs get elegant because we have to go around them. And the more restrictions on the design the better and more elegant the design if the designer's good at his task. But if the designer's really good, he or she should be able to implement their own restrictions to the, to the goal of elegance. That's how you think about it. Moving on. <laughs> Can you cage chickens and still get free-range benefits? If so, how? It seems like a dumb question. It's not. It's, the answer is sort of. It depends, kind of, right? So, for instance, in the, the, not the original, but the modern Greening the Desert site in Jordan that Jeff Lawton oversees, they have chickens that are in runs, and they take all the waste stream, and it starts at the top of the run. And then each day... They turn the compost, or each couple days they turn the compost, and it goes down, slightly downgrade in this run, and the compost moves 
and then a new pile, and then it keeps moving, moving, and out the end comes out this beautiful, perfect finished compost at the end of the run. I've seen those videos. Those chickens are prisoners. They don't know it. They're like most Americans who are tax slaves. They don't know it, so they're happy. They're blissfully ignorant. There is no doubt if you respect the space requirements per bird, you monitor your flock so if there's conflict, you eliminate the birds that either aren't fitting in or are causing the problem. You make sure your birds are well-fed, well-watered, have the shelter that they need as far as shade, protection from cold and the wind, that you can keep chickens in basically a run, which was really what? It's an aviary. And those chickens can be completely happy. They can go on a chicken tractor. And that's another form of a cage. And they can be completely happy. Here's what I don't think can be done. You keep chi- like chickens in a small like bird cage, and they're happy. I don't think that's a thing. I don't think that's a thing. So as long as we're talking about like a coop and run design, and this was like, this is what my grandparents did. We had a coop. We were classic victory garden. Coop, run, and run. So we had two runs coming off both sides of the coop. And the chickens were on one side for a season and on the other side for the next. And we gardened, and we gardened our large crops in the run. We did like corn and, and, and like corn and pumpkins is what we did in those. So like the, re- the regular garden had like the peppers, the tomatoes, all that stuff. And then the runs were actually pretty big and we would do like silver queen sweet corn and like, uh, the long neck pumpkins, uh, in, 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 in where the chickens were. And we usually would plant like, uh, cowpea or something like that as well within that. It's really kind of like a three sisters garden. And then there might be some other stuff kind of done on the periphery of the run. If you go back and search for it, I'll see if I can find it today. If I remember, there was a uh, a permaculture video by a guy from Australia, and he built a system exactly like that. But he also put, like, trees in the runs and put tires around the trees to keep the chickens from damaging the roots of the trees. And then as the trees grew up, the chickens had shade within their runs. And, of course, in the fall, when all the leaf fall came, the chickens processed the leaves. I can't remember exactly what that was called. I put it out a bunch of times, I mean, years ago. It's low resolution. It's a square picture, right? Um, if any of y'all know what I'm talking about, can find it and drop it into the notes. Um, I, I'd really appreciate it. Uh, and some someone out there right now listening, watching the live stream knows this, but What you need to do if you're going to do this, in my opinion, and this is my opinion, and I'm not like some PETA save the chickens type or anything. I've managed chickens in enclosed systems, and I've noticed that they really don't care. I've managed chickens in free-range systems, and I would say that I think their quality of life is better. They're probably happier, but the ones that are in the confined systems don't know that they're not as happy as they could be. Yeah. But I have also had, and most of you guys that have cared for chickens have probably had to do this in your life. You have a chicken that's normally a free-range chicken, and for some reason that bird must be contained for a week or a day or something like that. I, I don't know if you kept them that way long enough, if they would eventually kind of sort of be happy, but it seems to me that they're just miserable. I had a couple one time that they were just getting picked on 
And so I put them in a pretty good-sized chicken tractor. It was like four by eight foot. Certainly it was two hens. They'd been overbred. They had some, you know, bloody backs. And I kept them in there for like two weeks until I found these chicken saddles that helped protect that and, and put them on them and put them back with the flock. And they were like, they just kind of sat there and didn't really do anything. Where you take chickens that have never been free and you put them in a chicken tractor, they pack and they do their thing. They've known freedom. So I think if you're going to do kind of the coop and run model and you're going to migrate to, it's, it's better to either sell off, give away, or eat your flock and start with birds that have never known free range, in my view. Because my experience with them is they've been miserable. The next thing is really deep litter systems, lots of different options for feed, in a system where bugs and stuff can not only get in, maybe they're encouraged in some ways to get in. They need to be able to take dust baths. They need to have a clean water solution. And they need to be able to get out of the wind, the rain, and the sun, depending on what's going on any given day. And then you need to look at, like, you know, standard husbandry practices. Generally, they say, like, four square feet per bird. I don't know if that's enough for me. It's probably close, though. Four, six foot, square foot per bird. If you think about it, they're not the most bright critters on the planet, are they? Their head is, you know, the biggest of shooter marble, and their brain is literally the size of a pea. They only have so much capacity to comprehend their self-awareness. But I've seen things that, that again, I try to try to treat a chicken with respect. For instance, we had a chicken that lost all her babies to fire ants this year. I don't know how a chicken grieves. But I know grief when I see it. And whatever it is a chicken needs to do to grieve, that bird did for two days. And then she went back to her life. So that means there is a capacity for emotion and thought in a chicken. And so I just think if you want to do this, start with birds that have not known an alternative to it. That's just my – I'm not going to say you're a bad person if you don't. That's just my advice. Um, last one. Understanding inflation – is draining your life force over time. I think this is a good one to end on because it'll give you impetus to do something about it. So I want you to think about inflation as what it really is. It is the erosion of value which you have worked for and or stored. So if, if we just use dollars for this, you go off to work, Hi-ho, hi-ho, it's off to work I go. I owe, I owe, it's off to work I go, right? Uh, you go out and you work really hard. And you make thousand bucks a week, 50 grand a year. And you can live on 800, so you're saving $200, right? So at the end of the year, you have $2,400. If inflation was high this year and real inflation was, let's say, 10%, $240 of that $2,400 was just taken. But it wasn't the money that was taken. Was it? It wasn't the money that was taken away from you. Money is just a symbol for energy that we expend in order to receive that money. You did something for that money. Maybe you have a job where you have, like a lot of people in this country, it's really not that important and you don't really work that hard, but you occupied a chair and a desk for eight hours a day 
five days a week, 40 hours a week. Plus, you had to drive to work and come home. You had to give up your freedom. Even at the lowest base level, you expended life for that money. And someone took it out of your battery and did whatever the hell they wanted to with it. It is not gone. Energy cannot be created or destroyed. Huh? Only changed in form. And the form that changed was the hand holding the energy. Inflation is not, oh, things just cost more. Inflation is new money sucking value from old money in an inflationary economy. Some of it is supply and demand curve, but because of economic ignorance, the American public doesn't know the difference between inflation and supply and demand curve. They think they're the same thing. Prices went up, that's inflation. Well, the prices go up fairly evenly across the board. That's probably almost all inflation. Prices went up for roofing materials due to roofing material shortages. That's supply and demand curve. That's not inflation. You could have a perfect monetary system and a shortage of supplies will, will cause an increase in the cost of that supply if there's sufficient demand for it. Now you can create, you can, you can, one can cause the other. If you print enough money and there's more money going after available goods that were sufficient in the past, you'll create a shortage. Both of those things have happened. But either way, if it's sustained and retained, and it almost always is, even when they say, well, it's zero now. It didn't go up between July and August or June and July. Who cares? It's still up from last year, like 8%, and that's what your CPI. That's what I said. Not CPI, Consumer Price Index. No, CPI. We'll just leave out housing, the food you actually want to eat, fuel, like all the shit you actually need and pay for. We just don't include that, and then we say it's inflation. Look at the cost of it. You want to know what inflation really is? What's the cost of retirement? You want to know what inflation was between 1982 and 2022, in that 40-year period, all you really need to know what real inflation really is, what amount of money did a person need to literally purchase a good retirement in 1982? I'm 70 years old. I'm going to live to be 90 years old. How much money did I have to have to know I'm good? To buy something boring like government guaranteed bonds with a fixed interest rate forever. And no, I will never be a burden on my children. I'm good. I can go fishing, walk the beach until I fall over. I'm good. What did that cost me? Then in 2022, what does it cost? Go do that little experiment. And you'll find the entirety of every number ever given for inflation in those 40 years is an absolute fucking lie. Because that's a real measure of inflation. That's the cost of living and being able to go all in and buy it at once for the next 30 years. That's an inflationary adjusted true cost. And it's, in, it's, it's huge. The thing is, the whole time you were doing it in that 40 years, because you started working in 1982, you put your 40 years in, now you want yours. As you were building it, inflation was sucking from it. It's not just that the cost went up. It's the value of what you held was drained. Now think of it this way. Let's say you are a fortunate individual with good genetics and you take a good, solid look at caring for your life. You make sure that you take care of yourself. You don't drink too much. You eat the right food. 
you, you, you keep an eye on your numbers and you're going to live. We know you're going to live to be a hundred. Somehow we know you're going to live to be like a hundred and somewhere between 100 and 101, you're going to keel over, go to sleep, never wake up. Most people probably like, I can, I can take that. That's a pretty good deal. It's better than most get. All right. Well, then we think of our life in a really weird way. That we start out, we're one and two, and we grow, and we think that our life force grows over time. Our abilities grow over time. Our frame and stature grows over time. Our maturity, intellectualism, and value grows over time. But our life force drains every day. Whatever whatever day you're going to drop over, you're burning some percentile of that. That's your dash we talk about every day. So if we do a hundred years, your first year of life where you're, you're, you're crawling around on the ground, drooling on yourself and shitting your pants, you just burned 1% of your life force to do that. And it's important because that gets you to two where you learn to say no and throw tantrums and you still shit your pants. You start putting things in your mouth that really shouldn't go there. You start growing teeth, growing up. End of your second, you burn 2% of your life. It's really important because you get to three. Now, you really know how to say no and throw tantrums, and maybe you're not pooping yourself no more. You start to learn, really walk around. Four, five is the year of why. Why? But the sky's blue, but why? And you hit six, and then the real personality really starts to develop. And we think you're growing, and you are, but you just burn 6% of your life. You get up into the high school years. You learn to ask people out on a date, drive a car, get your first job if you're not living at home off your mommy for the rest of your life. You're 16. You burn 16% of your life. This is the true laws of thermodynamics. You can't win. can't cheat. can't get out of the game. Totally lifted that from Michael Saylor. When I lift things, if I remember it, I give credit. MIT trained engineer. You can't win. Can't win a lot. You will die. Entropy is coming. You can't cheat. And you can't get out of the game. Right? You only get it out of the game by dying. And when you die, you've lost. So you can't win. You can't cheat. Can't get out of the game. 30 years old. Got some kids. Building a house. Homestead. Good career. Good income. Working for your retirement, you've burned 30% of your life force. Inflation. Inflation is taking the life force without all the beautiful things we get along the journey. It's pure parasitism. And it's done very stealthily. And it's done with very malicious intent because the people doing it know precisely what they're doing. The giant global banking system is a giant parasite. It exists for no real purpose other than to drain the life force of the vast majority of humanity. It doesn't mean it doesn't do anything useful, right? It doesn't mean it doesn't do anything useful. It doesn't mean that we can't get some nice things because of it. It makes a trade with us. That's what parasites do. They're not always annoying. The little things, what are they called? I can't think of them now. That, that attach to sharks, right? Or the birds. 
that, that go on the back of Cape Buffalo and eat the little bugs off them. They're kind of annoying to the Cape Buffalo, but they eat the bugs. The banks aren't even that useful, but they are useful. You can write a check, and it'll clear, and then somebody will get paid, and you didn't have to go there to, to, to do it. And now you can swipe a card or enter something online. But in the end, they exist for the purpose of printing money through lending. And lending is where you pledge your life force in the future for money now that they do not give you. They fabricate based on your promise. That's fractional reserve lending. You go to buy a house. The house is $200,000. You're getting a zero down, zero down loan for whatever reason. And they say, here, Mr. Packrat, remorse. That's what I was thinking of there, Packrat, remorse. But here, Mr. Packrat, here's a check for $200,000. Oh, you don't actually get this. We'll send it to the title company to pay for your house. You're like, gee, the bank gave me $200,000. No, they didn't. You generated it through a promise of your life force in the future. That's what fractional reserve lending is. And then they make money through interest on consideration they never tendered off of your effort. But at the same time, You took that loan out. You didn't do anything wrong, Packrat. Don't think I'm picking on you for taking a $200,000 loan out. What do you think happens when you create that $200,000 with your promise? Money was printed. It's not just every time the Democrats or the Republicans sign a bill. Every time there's a loan, the velocity of money, the rate at which it moves and, and, and grows in the economy increases, you have greater inflation. Go read the Federal Reserve's own documents if you doubt me. And where does the value in that $200,000 that they gave Packrat by creating it when he promised to pay it back come from? My money, his other money, Packrat's other money, Stymie's money, Hunter's money, Green Country Agroforestry's money. That's where it comes from. And the only way you beat inflation is either risking capital in investments that defeat inflation in monetary return, which they'll tell you is 2%, which is a lie, it's at least 10 on an ongoing basis, and right now it's more like 20, because the CPI number is a lie, because if you factored it in on something that actually matters, like what is the cost of retirement for the rest of your life, you'd see the truth. You want to see the truth? Price, the Dow Jones Industrial Average from 1970 to 2020 in gold, and then you'll see the truth. Then you'll see the truth, and it won't look like this, like it does right now. It will look way differently, way different. So what what really beats inflation? Either risk, meaning I have to go into stocks or equities or investments that really do give an average analyzed return of about 15 to 20%, over years and years and years. But I do that at risk. I have to buy something like real property, but then I pay tax on the real property. So I have to strategically buy real property. It's crazy, but I'm probably better off buying the real property with debt than I am with money. I use the money to prove I can pay the debt to buy the property with money that they printed for me to buy the property with. And I can borrow against it. Anything else you can think of you might be able to do to beat this inflation thing? Yeah, there's that. We're not going to go there today. It's not a breakout episode. You know what to do with that. There's other things, though. We can buy the real property. 
we can inflate the actual value of the real property without inflating the appraised value of the property at the same time. A property with a great big garden and a property with livestock on it might actually appraise lower or qualify as a uh, agricultural property. I might actually pay less tax on it, even though it's worth more money to me, even if I don't sell any, I don't sell one egg off property. If that property has several small dwellings on it that I rent out, I might even in the future figure out some way to Airbnb it without any actual revenue flowing for those 87,000 new agents to partake in. Or maybe I even just pay the man. How much apple wine to trade per acre? Isn't that interesting? What's the value of a gallon of good apple cider to your friends? They'll pay you, I don't know, something else. Something not on paper. What's the value of that? What's the value of a property that's built in such a way that it literally becomes a compound for your family for generations? And I don't mean a compound like we're going to go fight the band with it. Not that way anyway. Where it just sits there, it just looks like a bunch of rural poor people, but man, they're living good. What's the value of tools? What's the value of knowledge? What's the value of being able to do things? What's the value of quality of life? If we step outside of their system into our own actual parallel economy, not this idea that a parallel economy is a marketplace on Gab. I'm not putting Gab down for having a marketplace. I think it's a great idea, but it's not a parallel economy. It's not a parallel economy. could turn into one, but it's not what it is right now. If it's a parallel economy, Facebook Marketplace is a parallel economy. It's two social media sites, one censors and one doesn't. Still the same thing. It's not a parallel economy. The parallel economy is if the relationship's actually built to where the business no longer requires the marketplace. Now you've got a parallel economy. Once the connections are formed and they're ongoing and evolving and it takes on as see, an economy is an organism. If it's not an organism, it's not an economy. It's just a marketing platform. An economy is a living, breathing, evolving organism. You want to see something that looks like an organism, go look at the Fountain app and the value-for-value stuff that's going on with podcasting there. Not just because I want sats. I do. I'm not going to lie. But if you look at it, you'll start to see that it literally is evolving. It won't all, maybe Fountain won't be the killer app for value for value. I've seen Breeze starting to do some stuff that's like, hey, we're losing dominance. See, that's an economy. It's not Fountain that's the economy or Breeze that's the economy or Curocast that's the economy. It's the value for value space that Adam Curry literally gave birth to. This becoming all the apps are just different ways to plug into this information exchange value exchange economy. If you're going to have an economy grow that's a parallel economy in food in rural ag, like what Texas, uh, Texas Slim is doing with the beef initiative, it's not about Texas Slim. It's not about beefinitiative.com. It's about the fact that human beings want to do business with each other outside of this very tightly controlled system, and you need. Hundreds of beef initiatives, which look to me like it's going to happen. That's your parallel economy until it moves and breathes and multiplies and adapts. And that's how you win.
That's how you win. Smarter, faster, harder only comes from evolution, and evolution comes from adaptation. When you look at nature, and it's beautiful all the time, there's no real mangy animals running around or limping animals or whatever. If one's limping, it's not that bad. Everything's beautiful. Everything's National Geographic because anything that gets really sick or really injured dies. Everything's in the prime of life. It's either a baby or it's in the prime of life. Human beings are the exception. We are those who have the compassion to care for our elders, and that's a good thing. But when we, when we, when we lose sight of the fact that we get smarter and faster and harder through adaptation, and we mess everything up, and we think we can make We think we can make time go backwards. That's what fiat money is. And we try to have a negative interest rate, right? We want to put the life force back after it was expended. That's what a negative interest rate is. It defies the laws of the known universe. Can't cheat. Can't get out of the game. And you can't win. You can only play. But you can choose where you play. Location, 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 they say in real estate. You have to figure this out for yourself. Green Country Agriforce says, I have bartered pecans and wild onions for turquoise and silver. I reckon I got the better end of the bargain. Maybe not. So let's say that the silver and turquoise you got an individual barter was worth 50 bucks. Person get $50 worth of pecans. They're happy. You're happy. You might feel you got the better end of the deal because if you hadn't done that, you didn't have a secondary market and the pecans would have rotted on the ground. The person who would have paid 50, maybe the person would have paid $60 for the pecans down the road in U.S. dollars. And maybe they had no money in the turquoise and silver. Their parent kicked over or whatever and it was in a box and they didn't really, they knew it was worth 50, 60 bucks. But they didn't really value it at 50, 60 bucks. That's how barter works. I will give you something that's worth more in dollars than your thing is worth in dollars to you. But your thing is worth more in dollars than my thing is to me. But it doesn't always work. That's why we need another means of exchange. Like, I don't know, Bitcoin, right? Was I not supposed to say that? Talk, sorry. That's the number. When you understand what I just told you, what I just spent 20 minutes on, And then you look at Bitcoin, you'll look at it differently. You'll see it differently and you'll understand it differently. And by the way, those of you that are more reluctant holdout children, that's why you don't want to. Because once you do, you know what it will mean. It will mean you have to change your life. And I don't mean that means you're stacking. I mean, even if you don't, even if you don't ever buy any Bitcoin, you'll still have to change your life. It's the same reason people don't want to accept, hey, eating this way is better. Well, you're going to have to give up the ho-hos and the ding-dongs. That's the real reason you don't want to accept it. In your heart, you know that. The reason that people will not accept the fact that voting for somebody else will not change anything in your life is because then you'll know that you're actually going to have to do it all yourself. This is all growth, not growth. Growth is on paper. Growth is inside. Growth is uncomfortable. And it's uncomfortable because we spend our life force to do it. Growth has a cost. You can't cheat and you can't win. You can only explore and enjoy and discover with. 
if I'm going to learn to do a new skill and I'm going to put 40 hours of training into it, I'm burning 40 hours of my life. Better be worth it. Now, think of what that means. How many people spend 30, 40 hours a week doing something that doesn't matter? And I'm not talking about work. At least work has a profit as a result. I'm talking about people that are on their phone, you know, swiping left 30, 40 hours a week or more. People playing video games for 30 to 40 hours a week. People arguing with others for 30 to 40 hours a week. You might be better off doing absolutely nothing in a hammock than doing those things. Because one way or another, inflation's draining your life force while you're spending it at the same time. Let's take a look at a few. I only have a few here. Um, do we have a breast breeding group yet? Planning on starting tractors this month. I don't know if we have anybody that has a breeding group yet, but we do have a breast chicken telegram group. You can email me for it. But honestly, if you're on telegram and you search for American breast chicken, you should find the group. I don't think we've hidden it. I didn't hide it and I set it up and breast is B R E S S E. Next up. The Sloth's Den says, Jack, is PI still a viable crypto? I guess you mean pirate chain. Um, viable? Sure. Am I buying a bunch of it? No. Do I have a bunch of it? Yeah, because I bought a bunch of it when it was $0.08. Cents. A bunch of it. I think privacy cryptos are about the only thing left in the altcoin space that have a value. I would say this. You've got Bitcoin. You've got pure privacy coins like Monero and Pirate Chain. And you've got, there's something to stable coins, though none of them are perfect. There is a value in being able to say, even though I, I all this inflation I just talked about, I'm not worried about the next 10 years with this money. I'm worried about the next two weeks. There's value in that, too. And there's value in being able to capture profits if you're a trader. I'm not, but if you are, there's value in that. So, like, those are the three places where I'll give any credence to. The rest of it's all crap. Even some of the stuff I still own from my shitcoining days that are not that long ago that I haven't sold, it's only because I think at some point it will be worth more than it is now and it will be a better time to get out. The trap with that is that shitcoin, if you're holding a shitcoin and you think, well, I think it's going to go back to here, will it go back to there faster than Bitcoin will go back? And when it comes to the Bitcoin economy, realize something. You're always spending sats. I don't care. I spend dollars. No, you spent sats because you could have had sats with it. Um, Weathered Soul says, what vegetables should you not grow wicking in a pond, pot, submerged, cinder block? Okay. So what he's saying is I have a method of doing really simple wicking bets. You take a pot with some holes in it. You sit a cinder block in a pond, and then you put plants in it, and you sit the pot there. Um, the answer is actually, believe it or not, you can do anything that will fit in the pot. The question is, how high does the water come up on the pot? So it needs to come up high enough that the plant can get enough moisture. You know, if it's barely in the water, it's going to be, it's going to dry out anyway. But it can't come up so high that it makes the plant uncomfortable with wet roots. So there's a lot of plants that we think need a lot of water that really don't, like tomatoes. Tomatoes can grow in an aquatic system, like in a hydro or aquaponic system really well, but that's because those are really good at giving it lots of oxygen, right? And it adapts to that. Tomatoes are actually a desert plant, so they don't really like to be really, really wet. 
A lot of your greens and stuff are fine with it. But what will grow best in those situations are going to be plants that use a lot of water, and then we just have to balance it. And it's more of a balancing act than what you can and can't do. But obviously the best thing is aquatic plants that like to have water underneath them. I have one little pot of tr- – I didn't even know there was true aquatic mint till this year, mentha aquatica. I put one little – and it's just – it's amazing too. It's an amazing mint. Um, it's generally not best for growing things like, you know, sweet potato and, uh, peppers, tomatoes and all. Cucumbers actually do really good that way though. If they're in the right situation, it's, it's like any other wicking bed. The problem is in a wicking bed, you have an absolute upward limit and in a pond, that upward limit may be higher than you anticipated. Right, so the, your pond level ebbs and flows, and it probably doesn't do it rapidly. Now, if it did rapidly, you're doing an, an actual ebb and flow. Like if you had a small pond and a lot of grow beds, like a lot of ebb and flow beds, that pond level's dropping every time that cycle and coming right back up. This is the problem with that, though, in a wicking bed. It's leaching nutrient out of the soil. It's the exact opposite. An ebb and flow bed that's filled with something like leca or lava rock you're taking the nutrients from the water to the plant, and the plant's taking the water. When you have soil, wonderful pH buffer and wonderful holder of nutrient, and you're drenching it and then draining it back down and drenching it, it's like high rainfall in the rainforest soils. The rainforest soils, you would think intuitively, would be incredibly nutrient-dense, but they're not because there's so much rainfall, it leaches a lot of it out. And Hunter says, I think I'm afraid of designing something out that I'll need in five to seven years. Yeah, don't be. So that, when we design that way and we're thinking five to seven years from now, we might have different goals. Really, on a small property, it's not going to be that big a deal. So on a big property, we put all our design energy into zone one, maybe zone two. And we don't do as much out in larger zones. Or when we do do something, we do it with the mentality that I might want to change it. The only things that are truly type one errors, which means... The day I did it, from that day forward, I wished I didn't, and it's really hard or impossible to change, are things like structures, like buildings and ponds, and to a lesser degree, roads and fences. Joel Salon has a rule with fencing. It's really cheap to stick rebar and freaking fence line wire and put a charger on it in the ground. And if you don't like it, you pick it up and you move it. And there's lots of temporary fencing. If you think you need a permanent fence you're going to put a lot of money into, put a temporary fence there. If it's still there in two years, put a permanent fence there and put the movable infrastructure somewhere else. I don't know if I'm going to go that far, but I, I do get a lot of lesson there out of the uh, the mentality of it. Uh, I think that wraps things up for the day. I appreciate you guys being with me. I want to remind you guys you can always help support the show by doing your online shopping at tspaz.com. That's T-S-P-A-Z, tspaz.com. If you go there and help us out, no matter what you buy, you'll help support us in the work that we do. I'm about to pull up today's item of the day for you guys. If you're in the uh, in the actual uh, live stream or watching the video here, and it is J.B. Waterweld Epoxy. Now, Yes, it's the water well epoxy. That means that you, it, it will work in a wet environment. You can literally, it will literally cure underwater. Why do I recommend the water well? 
because it will also cure if it's not underwater. And the stuff that's not made for underwater won't. So why would you have both or one or the other? And in my experience, when something breaks, it's usually also wet. It breaks in the rain. It breaks in the snow. It breaks in the winter. It breaks in the mud. It breaks on the underside of a vehicle. Like, this is for fixing stuff. And I want to show you an example of something I recently fixed with it, which is, is the probably the outward limit. And by God, I know I added that picture, and it's not there. Let me go find that picture, guys. No, I'm not going to be able to find that picture. I had some pretty, I'm sorry, I had some pretty big tanks, and they're, you've, some of y'all have seen them before. They're about four foot by four foot and about two foot deep, and they're made out of fiberglass. And what they were for is they used to feed them, they used to be real common apparently, and they used to feed uh, molasses to cattle in them. And uh, I've used them for a lot of my aquatic systems. They're big, ugly-looking square tanks. And I needed one more for the last project I did. And I had one, and it had a crack in it, and I leak-tested it, and it failed. It was about a 9-inch crack. It was about 7 inches on the side, and it wrapped underneath the bottom about 2 inches. And it wasn't broke. It was cracked. It was fractured. And when I filled it up with water, it seeped fast. And if you pushed on the sidewall, you could tell, like, it, it was ready to go. It was like, boss, I can't, you know, you got like 2,000 pounds of water in a tank that size. So I drained it, made sure uh, it was clean, and I took an entire tube, two entire tubes, and kneaded it till it was completely mixed together. This stuff's like a putty. It's got a white and a, and a, a dark gray, and it makes a light gray color when you mix it together. It smells like stale urine. That's a good thing with this. It needs to smell like that or you didn't mix it enough. And it needs to be really mixed. I mixed it like that and I made like a snake out of it and I put it all along the crack, pushed it into the crack and then smoothed it out like a, like a crappy bondo job. And I did one on the inside and one on the outside. And I went about, you know, two inches to each side. So it's about maybe, maybe inch and a half, about three inch wide strip all the way along the crack and about an inch and a half passed on both ends, front and back. And I let it sit and cure for a day. I'm like, I, I think we're pushing things here. That system's been up and running for five months now. No problems. I'll add that picture to that write-up. You can take a look at it later at tspaz.com or just go to the survivalpodcast.com and scroll down from there. And with that, we are wrapped up for the day. I did want to let you guys know about one other resource uh, that I have for you. And this is on my Bitcoin breakout website. There is a link in the notes, in the video notes below that will work already even now if you're watching a live stream. And it is my Bitcoin tools. And so those of you that are not still reluctantly holding out against Bitcoin, this is everything I use or have used and still recommend all in one place. The fold card, this is something you want to get your hands on, in my opinion. And if you do and you use that link right there, you see this sign up and get 5,000 sats. Yeah, if you sign up through my link for the fold card, you'll immediately get 5,000 sats. It's not going to pay your for your heart transplant or nothing, but it is 5,000 sats for free. All the wallets I recommend, the good and bad about them, exchanges I recommend, hardware wallets I recommend, services and nodes I recommend, podcasting value apps I recommend, how to monetize your media, and some fun stuff as well. It's all on this one page. 
thebitcoinbreakout.com forward slash tools. If you go there, you'll find all that stuff. And it's just something I put together to put it all in one place because people are always asking what I recommend. And I believe in full disclosure. So, like, if you shop on TSPAS, I make money and I tell you. If you shop on Bitcoin Breakout's tools page, the Bitcoin Breakout forward slash tools, if I earn a commission, it says in little kind of maroon asterisk italic writing at the end of that blurb, I do receive a commission. If you don't see that, I don't. I believe in full disclosure. I hope everybody has a great weekend. I hope you take to heart what I had to say about inflation today. I'll be back Monday. And remember, next week we're on a new schedule. Fridays will be expert counsel Q&A shows. That'll give those guys an extra day to get their stuff together for me. And maybe it'll be a little less piking. And it'll give me an easier day on Friday. You guys have a great weekend. And remember, if you want to ever send me any information in relationship to this show, jack at the survivalpodcast.com with TSPC in the subject line. Take care, guys. Have a great weekend. You pull yourself up. They keep bringing you down. Are they going to bail you out or just run you around? They said you should have a house the American way. Dollar down, a dollar a month, and you never have to pay. There's a better way to do this. Let me show you a better way.